Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Business. Today, we're sitting down with Phil Card, who is a serial entrepreneur, international businessman, has, I'm sure, some great stories, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. But as with everything, it's best to come from you. So can you give us some background on yourself? Yeah, thanks, Corey. I'm a Canadian by birth and by citizenship, but by culture and life, I'm more of a I guess an Asian or an Indonesian is probably the right way to put it, just because my whole life has been overseas. My dad was in the oil business, so we left North America when I was three, found our way to Saudi Arabia, Libya, and tried to live back in Canada, but he made the mistake of moving the family to White Court, Alberta in February from Saudi Arabia, and that lasted about two months at 30 below, and then we decided that we were too used to the heat and went to Indonesia. And then basically I've kind of stayed here most of my life. Went through high school at the international school here, did university as close to Canada, but in the US as I could find, which was Spokane, Washington and Gonzaga. Enjoyed the time there and uh, came back immediately at graduation to Jakarta. Started working here and actually showed up without a job because my dad, you know, from the prairies in Canada had the thought that, you know, after he's given us an upbringing and paid for everything, the minute you graduate, here's a one-way ticket and 500 bucks, good luck. And I actually really appreciate that from him. So showed up in Indonesia with nothing and managed to work my way up from there. In the 90s, I was lucky enough to work with an extremely wealthy Indonesian guy. And I think he liked me just because I spoke the language and I was Canadian. So he asked a rather creative, excitable 25-year-old if I had any ideas on how to spend his money. And I had a few ideas. <laughs> so a theme park and a movie studio later, we had a really good role in the 90s, built all kinds of businesses from satellites to, again, uh, we had a movie studio in Los Angeles to just the crazy times of the 90s in Southeast Asia. And then the party stopped. So the financial crisis hit. The rupiah fell, I think, close to 800% in about a month. And there was protests all across the country. And Suharto resigned from power at the time. It was an interesting transition to democracy for the country. Since I grew up here, I was on the streets at the same time, not really protesting, more watching what was unfolding. And I was lucky to be able to experience that. Decided that there wasn't going to be much happening here in Indonesia. So went to Boston, started a software company with some friends. We were doing AI work for the enterprise. So we created the first Sort of the pre-Google, we were making an application that could read documents, any type of document that you would check into an enterprise software system. Had a great time because when you grow up in Asia, you see North America and New York as sort of the holy grail of business. And you always wonder whether you're smart enough and good enough to do well there. But realize that was, you know, doing business just like everywhere else. We had good partners, managed to list the company, and eventually the whole thing got sold to Oracle. That's right. It was listed on the NASDAQ. 
Yeah, it was on NASDAQ. It was a small company called Active IQ that, that got bought by Stellant, that got bought by Oracle. Great experience, two years, absolutely loved it. Uh, managed to get married. My wife finished her PhD in Islamic politics, and I was going to be a house husband for a while and move back to Indonesia. And that lasted about a month. <laughs> so bought up some Indonesian internet portals at the time, and then found my way as an Asian entrepreneur into mining after a long time in finance and IT, and actually found my way into real hard rock mining. So I had an iron sands mine, then branched into some small gold mines, then was asked to help out Norse Kidro, one of the world's largest aluminia companies in a, a large bauxite reserve in West Kalimantan, then bought a bigger gold mine and some coal mines and was really enjoying all of it. I enjoyed going around the country, you know, not sitting in the city the whole time. I had a decent coal company. We listed it on the Singapore Stock Exchange. And then we were about to build a big power plant. And one day over breakfast, my 15-year-old daughter looked across the table and said, you know, Dad, we have to talk about what our parents do at school. I said, great. She goes, well, Dad, can I tell my friends you're a banker? And I said, what are you talking about? She says, well, you're in the coal mining business and you're killing the world. I said, And of course, we laughed and I laughed a bit. And yeah, that sat down and deep inside and realized that, you know, I want to do something that at least my kids are proud of. So that's where branched out into trying to figure out, is there a way we can combine experience in fintech where the blockchain revolution is going and mining? A lot of people in hard rock mining, of course, are, I want to say anti-technology, but not the fastest adopters of new things that come along. So realize there wasn't much thought that had gone into applications of blockchain tokenization, and the overall crypto revolution as well that had been applied to the mining industry. And that was the genesis of nature's vault where we are now. Yeah, yeah and that's your company now. And, you know, as I mentioned just earlier, before we jumped on, like I don't like talking about other people's companies or immediate kind of going concerns because it's, you know, this isn't a promote show. But when Armel reached out to me and said, this is what you're doing, I was like, this is fascinating because, you know, as a statistic, something like 50% of the world's gold is just held in storage. We never do anything with it. And so the cost and the environmental implications of extracting that gold out of the ground to go put it back in storage, there's a real economic model and potential arbitrage there isn't there of applying technology to gold that you leave in the ground. And that's, if I got it right from what I've read, what you're up to with Nature's Vault. Yeah, that's exactly it, Corey. So that's the leap that we took where... The first question came up when I went to the Grassberg deposit in the mountains of Iria Jaya or Papua New Guinea, and it is an engineering marvel. What they have built literally in one of the most remote, difficult parts on the planet to extract gold and copper out of the ground. And the effort and work that goes into getting that gold out only to smelt it and stick it in a bank vault somewhere, started to, you know, you ask that question, why are we still doing this? Can you give some context for us of like Grassberg as an example? I mean, that mine, it's huge, but how huge? Can you quantify for us? I'm not saying like by grams per ton, whatever, any of that stuff, but like almost just like, 
you know, football fields or, or whatever it is, because it's blowing my mind when I looked that up. I was like, to see the size of that and how they're moving mountains. So it is to start with, I think it's the world's largest helicopter airport. So most of the traffic to get to the mine actually takes a helicopter from the lowlands up to the highlands, which is interesting in and of itself. So then you get off the helicopter. There's a small town which feels like you could be in British Columbia or Texas somewhere that has been transported to the top of the mountain with a full school and shop. And I think there's all kinds of sports and entertainment. And then they started as an open pit where they did take the top off the mountain and have since built at least five kilometers of underground tunnels and extracted all of the earth out of it. And I think it's the world's largest fleet of remote controlled mining vehicles under the mountains that are taking out the ore right now, doing blasting and removing the ore. It is spectacularly massive, again, to create a slurry in mining terms, create a slurry of copper and gold and shoot it down from the top of the mountains into the receiving terminals at the bottom. Of course, it created large tailings area that over the last 30 or 40 years has been one of the areas that the company has tried really hard to rehabilitate, but it's very challenging. And that's you know one of the areas where you think about where the gold's going to end up in a vault. Yeah, maybe they didn't have to do that. <laughs> and that's where we started to look. I wanted to just get some context around there for the listeners and the viewers to kind of wrap their heads around like the size and scope of that. And when you move a mountain to take the gold out of it, you have to put that mountain somewhere else because you're not taking pound for pound. You're taking millions of tons of ore and then taking a few ounces of gold kind of thing. You know what I mean? Is not ounces, a few ounces, but the point being is that's all got to go somewhere. And so it brings you to the point of saying, well, what if we didn't have to move that mountain? Yeah. And, you know, global figures are that it's about 800 kilos of CO2 emissions per ounce of gold. So if you take out 70 million ounces, you're going to create around 50 million tons of CO2. And that doesn't include the other ESG problems when you, you know, when you put tailings down a river and it creates a basically a delta. And that's what happened in Grasper when they were moving it. Wow. Yeah. So tell us more about Nature's Vault. And we've got the premise there and take us into the details of how you're working on this. And I'll try not to interrupt, but I'm quite excited. I think it's a really interesting concept in business. So yeah, tell us more. Well, the original idea, as we just talked about, get measurable gold and keep it in the ground, attach a financial instrument to that and let people trade it on the token and coin exchanges around the world. When I first started looking at about three years ago, got more and more detail and then started down the road, realized like everything else, nothing is as easy as it sounds. And in the blockchain world, lawyers around the world have been examining it and regulatory and agencies to make sure as much as they can that it's buyer beware a bit that, you know, let's let a new way of people look at financial systems blossom and have creativity, but with some regulation and especially the SEC in the U.S., So we were very, very cautious and continue to be cautious to make sure that we do things properly from a legal perspective. And that was one of the first questions when I first started this that came up that, okay, well, we're going to have to be careful and do it properly from a legal perspective. And then I realized that coming from the mining industry myself as well, that 80 or 90% of our customers that are not mining people 
are going to always ask the same question, which is how do you know the gold is there? So to help answer that question and to give confidence, I realized that we need some world-class mining people in the company. And that's where we got to Paul Matasik. We got to his son, Nicholas Matasik, who's working with us on a full-time basis, and a number of others to come in and help us to make the company stronger, to look good from a mining perspective, and to really give that understanding of geology and taking a gold mine from an idea up to production. So that when we get asked the question, which we do all the time, how do you know the gold is there? We can walk through geological sciences. We can walk through a 43101 and how that's created, why it's important, and how we use that to prove that the gold was there. That's what I actually thought was interesting as well, is effectively using the national instruments or Australia has their kind of own instruments of sort to, you know, the parameters in which an industry can validate that yes, this is measured, indicated, and so on. And it goes different categories of, you know, from speculation to high probability kind of thing. And then actually put a value to that. And I'm a bit of a finance nerd. So when I think about it, you know, usually in the mining industry, you've got, let's say you got a mountain there and you know that after drilling countless holes, you've got something that is validated and such to say that you've done that economic analysis and you can drive an NPV out of that, that net present value. If you go and take down that entire mountain and move all that, have all of your inputs in there and ultimately extract the gold and then still have to deal with the kind of the aftermath of tailings, ponds and remediation and so on. But you can, when you have a big enough deposit, have a viable economic business for extracting that gold. Well, with what you're doing, you almost don't need that that richness or the same amount of gold per, you know, I don't know how you'd measure it, but per kilometer or something, square kilometer, where you don't have all of that cost directly associated to the extraction, but you still know the gold's there. Is that fair? And, and can you build on that? Yeah, we're kind of short circuiting the whole industry. So from being in the mining industry as well, I mean, we're highly disruptive as far as saying that gold deposits can stay in the ground, especially when there's no industrial use. So by doing that, the economics then become, can we offer a liquid market for a financial instrument like the token that is attached to the gold deposit so that people can extract the value without extracting the gold? And that's where that connection between, you know, as the coin and blockchain markets around the world, you know, reached well over a trillion dollars, there's enough of a market now in order to get that value while leaving the gold in the ground. So the arbitrage is, is how much does it cost to buy one of these deposits with, let's say, 43101, whether it's a resource or a reserve versus how much, you know, can we sell the tokens at? And what we're finding is, is that, you know, the ESG side of what we're doing, a younger generation that doesn't need gold to sit in a vault, that is willing to take that leap of faith and say, you know what, I trust the gold in nature's vault. And I trust it enough to say that I think, you know, there's a value to this token that's attached to that. And then that's where can we buy these deposits at a cheaper Great, then it costs for us to sell the tokens at and the tokens trade at. And Corey, what we found so far is the absolutely yes. So if you're in the mining industry, you know that you can buy inferred resources around the world 
or anywhere from three to eight dollars an ounce. And if we can market this correctly and the token buyers like the idea of green gold, then it can trade closer to parity with gold. That's amazing. So if you're talking three to eight bucks an ounce is what you can buy a deposit for, an inferred deposit. An ounce of gold now is trading for, you know, what is it? I'm confused between Canadian and US numbers, but in, in around two grand, is it not? 2,400 Canadian, I think, somewhere around there. That is a huge delta. It's a big delta. Yeah. And this is where we're focusing on trying to do is that next generation is wanting to do ESG related products and like the idea of an ESG or a green gold. There's a push on the side that's coming as well in that a lot of the rating agencies in the US are forcing companies and investors to declare the negative carbon value of their portfolio if it contains physical gold. Physical gold holdings have a negative carbon value to an overall portfolio. Whereas what we're doing, of course, is a neutral or if we get the carbon credits attached to this would be positive to your portfolio and you can still hold gold. Now, carbon credits have become, I don't know how about in kind of the Indonesian markets, but definitely North America and the Canadian markets, we've seen a lot of interest in the world of carbon credits and carbon offset projects and so on. What's it like? What's your take from your side of the world? Well, I think Canada, Brazil, and Indonesia are kind of the hearts of the carbon world right now. So there's tons of projects and ideas. You know, I lived through the first wave of carbon projects where, you know, it was a really great idea that didn't get implemented very well internationally. So the carbon credit market, just the bottom fell out of it. It looks like the regulatory agencies around the world are being a bit more careful this time to make sure that credits that are produced are valid and helpful and can be checked so that there's, you know, that there's not fraud in the market. You know, it's growing. There's a lot of interesting projects. Our take on it is on the avoided mining side. So we're talking to the regulatory agencies around the world about an avoided mining protocol for carbon which basically works by saying that we have a mine, we could mine it, we won't, we'll leave it in the ground, and we won't release that carbon into the atmosphere. Right. So is there actually a viable way to turn carbon credits out of that? Yeah, it looks like. I mean, there are other avoided mining or avoided protocols, of course, forestry and others, where you're rewarded by not producing that carbon. Because often, you know, where some of the agencies are looking at this is that we always talk about carbon offset to try to balance the carbon. But that still means that the carbon and the greenhouse gases are still released. So they still have a negative impact, whereas avoided carbon actually stops the release of the CO2 or these uh, greenhouse gases. Huh, phenomenal, man. So where's the project at now? And what's next? And, and can you also get into a bit of the... The I think you call it the legacy token and the blockchain behind it. And the reason why I ask is one for myself out of some ignorance around the whole world of blockchain and tokenization. It feels like you can never read enough about it. So I'd love to get your take, especially with a technology background as well. I mean, I'm sure you've got some interesting ways to look at it. So maybe we can start there. Sure. So the project is at the point where we wanted to buy our first mine as quickly as possible to prove the model 
to start selling tokens to show people that you know there's a viable market for these tokens attached to a mine. So we went ahead and bought a mine in Ontario, the Pistol Lake Gold Mine, and have started selling tokens attached to the gold deposit there. We're in negotiation with three other mines right now, hopefully can close on one of them in the next two weeks. And we'll at that point be well over a million ounces of gold that we are tokenizing and selling right now, these tokens. So it's moving extremely quickly. We're focusing our mines in Canada right now, patented claims, rule of law. From Canada, we'll look at potentially Australia, South Africa, Europe, and then some of the other countries. But for now, we're looking at Canada, Australia. Understand it, but from just uh, like a jurisdictional risk. Yeah, less political risk as well. The legacy token is that, Corey, we wanted to leave a legacy. And some of the people are, let's call them more senior businessmen that are in my team. We certainly have a lot of young people too, so it's an interesting dynamic. But a lot of people, especially myself that have been in or others in the mining industry, just kind of like my daughter said, dad, you know, I'm embarrassed about what you do. So when you really think about that and try to, you know, want to leave something behind, you, you know, you want to leave a legacy. And we found that this also speaks to younger people, the millennials, the new generation of financial investors to say, you know, do something, you know, good with your money and actually leave a legacy behind for the next generation. And that's where the name came from. So as far as the financial and fintech side of how this all works as far as blockchain. Again, I've been in you know IT for 25 years. So I was sitting down with an old friend of mine from MIT a week ago who was an old original database programmer that actually started with punch cards. And he was just laughing about blockchain and crypto. He's going, these kids, <laughs> just shaking his head. Because I mean, it's a traceable distributed database, basically. And it needed the processing power of the internet to actually start to work so that the blockchain is basically a way for us to keep track of everything and keep everybody honest. So it doesn't sit on one server, but it goes out you know, into the cloud onto lots and lots of other people's either servers or laptops or desktops. And that's how it's tracked. Now, with blockchain, is that technology and the protocols there, does that predate really Bitcoin and kind of the the original cryptocurrencies? I mean, they are effectively separate. You don't have to have a cryptocurrency to have a blockchain. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, by the way. But does blockchain technology and some of the theory and the protocols predate really cryptocurrencies or what's the history there? I guess it would maybe depend on the age of the IT person you asked. (laughs) I can guarantee you if you ask some of the older ones, they would say absolutely it does. It just never was implemented because we didn't have the distributed computing power on a network in order for blockchain to live. Just that, you know, you're going to send around and keep track of a distributed database across multiple computers. Bitcoin gets processed. An algorithm is processed. Somebody wins and produces a Bitcoin, which, of course, takes more and more power and more and more computing power. And then it's written to the blockchain so that everybody in the world can keep track of it. And that's where those technologies come into play. So for us, when we produce a legacy token, 
we'll use blockchain as a way for everyone to track that. So everybody tracks it together, not just one server or one bank or one company saying, hey, well, trust us. <laughs> We've got this. You've got the tokens. And if there's a problem, we all have it in this database. We distribute it. And so the blockchain for Nature's Vault and Legacy Token, they're completely independent. It's its, its own blockchain, I would imagine kind of own protocols and software effectively, right? That's distributed among a number of different computers. And point being, I'm summarizing here my understanding, point being that you can never hack just one of those computers to give a incorrect result or to defraud the system. Because it's distributed, it's got to be matched across all the different servers. So when you go to set this up and you use this blockchain, I'm just calling them protocols. If I'm wrong, let me know. But when you set that up, how do you ensure that that is safe and that it's using kind of the, the going standard best practices? And how do you get it onto different machines out there, different servers, different laptops? What, do you just ask your friends? Do you go to AWS? Like, how does that all work? Yeah. And again, it sort of seems like we're, if we do a comparison to the beginning of the internet, when we were talking about TCPC protocol and we were talking about HTML and how we're connecting everything and the basic fundamental plumbing of the original internet. That's where the beginnings of blockchain and tokenization and smart contracts started. We're now progressing out of that in that there's applications and companies that have, have already connected a lot of the pipes and built the original plumbing so that we can focus on the application of the core technology rather than the plumbing of it. So for us, We'll be doing our smart contracts and blockchain on the Ethereum network. Uh, it's a global standard. It's improving all the time. And by using their standard, then, of course, we tap into that network as well. Kind of the open source of it. Yeah. So if somebody did get hacked or there was a, who knows, maybe there was just fault in their system, something happened on one computer in the network, it's basically all of the others kind of gang up and say, hey, you made a mistake. You got to follow us. We know better what was happened. And then it sort of realigns. Gotcha. And so by using, are you actually using what is known as the Ethereum blockchain? Like there's only one Ethereum blockchain or are you using kind of like the protocols or the, the model within your own blockchain? Or do you just go tie into Ethereum? Like how does that? So we tie into the Ethereum network and then, you know, write our smart contract specifically for our application. Okay. Interesting. Which is the way to track the legacy token. Right. And is this why Ethereum is so popular in a way? I mean, there's so many kind of applications that can tie in with that versus just Bitcoin as an example. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And it became a standard. It was easy enough to use that everybody started to use it. Of course, they have a problem with their gas fees. Uh, which they've been trying desperately to solve, which basically is the cost to do a transaction. And that was very apparent this week when there was a, a slight dip, let's call it, in the overall crypto markets. And everybody was kind of scrambling to figure out what was going on. And gas fees really shot up across the Ethereum network as everybody tried to process a transaction. Right, right. It's quite fascinating to see it all come together like this. And okay, so... Tapping in, I think the analogy that I'm going to use then is, as I'm learning here from our conversation, is 
for Nature's Vault and the Legacy Token, you've tied into the Ethereum blockchain. The same way in the world of kind of Web 2.0, to throw out some more jargon, is that it's as if you went to the WordPress, open source WordPress web development tools that are out there. And that was like, you wanted to create a, a website back in the day, and like 70% of the internet websites are created on WordPress, which is an open source tool. And so that's what Ethereum is, albeit for being a ledger and also a cryptocurrency. Yeah. So again, it's that ease of use as we do. And I love your analogy because like I said, I mean, the beginnings of the internet, if you wanted to create a, a web page, you know, you're trying to find an HTML programmer and this and that, and it was expensive. And, you know, now, you know, you and I can log into any, whether it's WordPress, which is almost as easy as, you know, using Microsoft Word for goodness sakes, and you can make a website. And now even easier applications where they just basically piece it together. And now as we've come out of that sort of plumbing phase of the blockchain revolution, we're now making it easier and easier for the real killer apps of the technology to take over. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Now, take me into how, I think you said Pistol Lake, you've got a, an asset there that has a measured resource that you're able to attach the token to, the legacy token to in some way. And I want to say some way, somehow. What is that? How do you say, this is how many ounces are there? This is how many tokens you're getting? What's that look like? So Pistol Lake has a resource statement. It's got 157,000 ounces of gold resource on it in a patented claim. Our model is that our legacy one token is a pool of a million ounces total. We're going to target 1.2 million ounces into the pool, discount it by 20%, and then have a full million in the pool. And then each legacy token is attached to that pool of gold. And that's where it extracts the value from. So with Pistol Lake, we know there's 157,000 ounces of gold. We're updating the 43101 to the latest standard. We publish everything, of course. And then the next mine will join the pool. And at that point, it looks like we'll have about 1.25 million ounces, of which a million will go into the legacy pool. That pool of million ounces is where the legacy token gets attached to. And then our job as a company is to keep those mines in good standing, of course, and to preserve the gold in the ground, to leave it there. You know, we'll have drone videos and people can look at the mine and see where their gold is because it's in nature's vault. It's probably easier to get an idea of where it is than some bank in Switzerland you've never heard of. But this way you can feel and see where your gold is actually stored. Interesting. And then, you know, if you look at right now, there's lots of different ways you could go actually buy physical gold, even if you just wanted to buy an ounce or two and keep it at your home, right? Throw it in your safe, throw it on your pillow. Just in that, the pain in the ass that it is and the illiquidity once you have that gold is a big thing for those out there who want to have some gold in their portfolios by a physical way. Yeah, you can buy some exchange traded funds and all this kind of stuff. But what you're doing sounds really fascinating. What about keeping the volume and the liquidity there? Is that going to be a major issue? Again, for the token and coin world, we're working with market makers that come in and work together with us and work with the exchanges where we list the token on to help create a liquid market for our tokens. But I was in the capital markets for most of my life. So in the end, it's also up to the company as, you know, is this a product 
that people like, that people want to buy and hold and trade. And then it's up to us to work hard to show people that this is a good alternative investment for gold and something that they could either you know, trade, go up in value, go down in value, or buy and hold as they would gold. Isn't there already like, unlike a lot of cryptocurrencies that are out there, there's a defined underlying value there. We had a real interesting conversation. It was, it was three days ago of one of the people who have been in the crypto world the longest of anyone I've ever met, which is, I think, seven years. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and as the crypto markets did a dip, you know, he called me up and he said, Phil, I just, you know, want to make sure you're okay and good. And I said, of course we are. You know, we have a token that's attached to gold and we're moving forward. And I understand markets have corrections and moves sometimes. And I go, well, why are you asking? And he goes, well, I just want to make sure because I think, you know, these tokens that are actually attached to something real is what's going to move the crypto revolution forward. And he wants to make sure that it keeps going. And for me, I mean, that was, it was nice to hear that encouragement from someone that's, you know, bled crypto for their whole life, or at least seven years for him. I think he's 29. He was one of these crypto gazillionaires. <laughs> so it was nice to hear. One of the things that I find interesting, and I'm curious if younger generations are going to start to attach to it, but it was like, arguably, the biggest turning point in global economics was the US's abandoning of the gold standard their step away from the gold standard in the Nixon administration. And with that, we no longer have a dollar bill attached to an amount of gold. And so you can argue what that means, right? What does that mean for the value of the currency? What does that mean for our economy? Are we better off for doing that or not? But I would imagine that there's a a group of people who are out there who look at cryptocurrencies as the way, but also say we need something to back it. We need something to ground it and say, this is supported by what is something that is the equivalent of a physical you know, form of value, physical store of value. I'm curious to think about the younger generations, if they're as concerned of that as myself and some of the older generations are. Well, they are now, <laughs> especially after the crypto dip, I can guarantee you that. But the real, I mean, from starting to understand it and see from the average, call it crypto buyer and participants' perspective. I look at it more of a, it was a revolution in finance and in personal finance where, you know, young people that grew up with the immediacy of information and the immediacy of the internet and the ability to, you know, send a WhatsApp message to a friend anywhere on the planet sort of started asking, why is banking such a pain? And why is it so difficult for me to interact with my own money? And that was, I think, one of the biggest driving factors of the crypto finance revolution in that, you know, banks were too slow. I mean, you know, you want to open an account in a bank, you basically have to give a DNA sample, for goodness sakes. Now, I mean, it is, you know, and you have to tolerate that they may decide that, you know, if I want to send my friend Corey you know, $500,000 that they get to examine it and hold it for three days. Yeah. Isn't that shocking? And that's where people woke up. And if, you know, you have the right application on your phone and you're trading Bitcoin and Ethereum and you want to send somebody, you know, $25,000, it takes three clicks and it takes less than a second. And that's where I think it's also starting to change banking because they've realized if they want to keep 
these customers, they're going to have to improve their service and change their service. I mean, it's really, you look and our banking systems and certainly in the West are built on such antiquated technology and such, you know, old ways of doing business. It's crazy, right? Like they just have never changed. And it's kind of like, they're just stuck like rocks. They can't move. Each bank is connected through the SWIFT, you know, system or whatever like this. And to change any of that would be, you know, far too painful. So they're just stuck. Yeah, they are. And you need a banking license and their own little gang. And I don't know about you, but I was, I had kind of gotten used to it, complain about it. But when, you know, crypto started coming up and there very clearly was a better way to do that um, and a faster way to do that and that people embraced it and are demanding it. And I think governments around the world with the internet being distributed as it is, are really have trouble figuring out how to regulate it. You know, if you want to download an application on your phone and you want to put Ethereum and Bitcoin on it and you're willing to agree with millions of other people that this is the value of that and you're going to use that as a currency and go back and forth, I'm not so sure there's anything the banks can do. (laughs) Yeah. If I was to back up, just look at the whole world of crypto and the opportunities that are coming in here. I mean, we are effectively in the early stages, the, the kind of early 90s of the Internet before anybody really knew. And there's a few people who are, you know, you call them crypto bros, but like they're kind of nerding out on this, but they're onto something. And eventually there's going to be a few things that are going to stick and take off in a way that like even bigger than Bitcoin and and Ethereum and some other of the, the bigger cryptocurrencies, but really fascinating there. I'm curious with the people that you're surrounded with, there's no doubt that you've got some really interesting talent around you. What are the conversations you have in and around the world, like Web 3.0 and, you know, different kind of technologies, like where we're moving, even aside from nature's vault, what entertains you? What kind of conversations do you have that you find are quite fascinating for right now? Well, on the hardcore tech side, again, as I'm a, a wiser, I'm not going to use the word older, a wiser tech gentleman, we certainly have conversations around the rebranding of you know technology into different names and you know companies like Facebook that say hey we're meta and we're going to focus on the metaverse and everybody in the world goes great what the heck's the metaverse <laughs> and they kind of say well it's the future and they say okay well how does it work and then there isn't a lot of understanding of what that really is other than a lot of hype and then, you know, when people come to us as a technologist and we try to break it down, these are the kind of conversations that we try to help people from a technology perspective understand what it really is and also what it isn't. So I believe in the potential future of something like the metaverse as a technology. But if you want to understand the metaverse, basically grab one of those Oculus and play Fortnite. And that's the metaverse <laughs> to summarize now, are there potential applications as we go forward? And these are the conversations that we have. And there are, but you know, we do try to, like we're doing with legacy, find interesting connections between industries, try to unpack what the world's talking about and where the world's going. And as a team, everyone in the company understands that what legacy is doing to gold mining and the disruptive nature is what nature's vault as a company needs to do every day. 
And as we look at other problems in the ESG world, it needs to be problems that are very, very challenging and difficult to solve. And that's what we're going to tackle. And that's what our next round of products that we move into is going to be about. And those are the fun conversations because we have a weird team. You know, we have mining experts, we have finance experts, we've got young programmers, we've got all kinds of people from all over the world. So it is fun. You know what I think that when it comes to the world of the metaverse and crypto and all this kind of stuff, perhaps for us who are more, you know, long in the tooth, and I think I'm crossing over that now, kind of joining the club on the other side of 40 soon, that perhaps we don't understand or aren't embracing it like we should because that user experience of how easy it should be isn't there yet. And, you know, for example, like online banking, five years ago, there wasn't an app out there that was an absolute dog shit. Excuse my French. It was all painful, even for those who were tech savvy. Now, grandparents are jumping on and just doing their stuff. And it's no questions asked. So I think that we're kind of getting through that or we're in that phase where we're still, there's these things that need to be ironed out to just make it a, a smooth and, and just easy and topical conversation. And perhaps it's, it's not a matter of how fast the technology can move but how fast the human can embrace it. Yeah. And that technology changes and gets better and finds its killer app. You know, as I nerd out a bit, I collect maps. So I have a collection of about 5,000 maps of Indonesia, originals from, I think, the 15th century all the way up to World War II bombing maps. And part of the reason I do that is for my kids and myself as a daily reminder, when I look at a map from you know the 15th century, when explorers from, say, Portugal were about to embark, and I can tell you what, their map of Indonesia was pretty messed up. <laughs> so you know what they thought was fact and what they thought was the way the world is at that specific moment, over time we learn it wasn't completely correct. And I'm sure a lot of the things we think now are right and how it should be done, in the future, they're going to look at us like, eh, we're pretty crazy. And we were way off the mark. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. You know, I just think about like comparing, let's say just easy, a Google Earth shot of Indonesia against that, you know, a 15th century map about how different it would be. Oh, <laughs> I mean, the Spice Islands where they had all the nutmeg. The island was the same size as Java in one of the maps. And in reality, it's not even the same size as the city of Jakarta. But of course, to the Portuguese at the time, that's where the nutmeg was. So that was the interesting and where the economic reason that they were coming to Indonesia. And that's where they traded this island for Manhattan for some island in the middle of the Java Sea for the Dutch and the British. Yeah. Now, by no means am I you know, trying to introduce any kind of content or relation, but was Briex not in Indonesia? Their office was in the building next door to mine in the 90s. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, and I think there was an office in Calgary, Alberta as well. I believe there was. Yep. So the reason why I ask is because it's such a, you know, it's an infamous story in the mining industry, right? And the movie Gold by Matthew McConaughey is, is built on that. I'm very interested to know your perspective of, you know, being in Indonesia and the history there and maybe some of the folklore around that. What's your take on that whole story if you're to throw back a little bit of memory or history there? Well, anybody that was a geologist or in the mining industry when it first started and when the core samples were being announced and the, I don't know, what was it, 500 grams per ton 
results over 800 meters or some psychotic number of the mountain of gold in Kalimantan that they've discovered, the original geologists in the 70s, 80s, and you know early 90s that were going through Indonesia all started shaking their heads. And they said, well, pretty sure we didn't miss a whole mountain of gold. <laughs> so we're really having trouble understanding and everyone was excited. But I think what it meant to me is one, how easy it was for two or three people to work together, mix cyanide with some gold and salt cores, and then how much the world wanted to believe it and nobody wanted to question. So when people bought into the idea when the stock was a buck, you know, they're the biggest fans when the stock was 10. And then, you know, when it's 20 and 30 and 50, and that sort of crazy and psychotic enthusiasm is what really drove the whole thing forward. The Indonesians at the time got excited. They couldn't believe the Canadians were going to take our, their gold and they had to get it part of it. And for me, it was sad because what it did for the country was it really stopped exploration afterwards. Because Indonesia, I mean, has some, you know, like Canada, has got mineral resources and natural resources all across the archipelago. But because of that incident, it really stopped exploration. Um, had that not happened, there would have been a lot more, you know, Jork or 43101 gold deposits that Nature's Vault could have worked with than there are now in Indonesia. But because of what Briex did, it, it stopped it for a long time. Oh, interesting. Yeah, kind of um, unexpected backlash that came from that. Yeah, yeah, it was just a couple of guys that got really greedy and who knows why they, you know, figured they'd get away with it. And again, once people started to believe, they wanted to continue to believe. Yeah, of course. Wow. Yeah. You could probably say that that incident, it rocked the markets in a way that perhaps has given us some of the tools now, which arguably are probably some of your strongest tools now, the 43101s and, and the kind of the industry standards of how is this measured? How is this verified? And so on that investors can actually invest with some degree of you know safety. Sure, they're speculating, but there's still a safety that things have been validated the same way, you know, auditors are supposed to be impartial, so on. So who knows, but interesting history there, man. I'm just curious because you've been down there. And I would agree that, I mean, that was the real beginnings of 43101 and Jordan. Right. Yeah. And without that, I don't think I would be able to do nature's vault today. Yeah. To me, it's almost foundational, right? So interesting. Ah, cool. We're kind of coming up on time here, but I do want to ask a couple other questions because you've lived a pretty fascinating life. I want to go back to being 25 years old and sitting down with a rich dude out of Indonesia and him asking, how should I spend my money? <laughs> gets you into the movie business, gets you into some other things like, you got to have some stories. That must have been wild. I have to be a bit cautious on which stories I talk about, of course. I guess the weirdest one was the movie studio in that they had bought a studio in Los Angeles and was entertaining for the first year. But then, of course, I mean, it's a business. And the business of making movies is a lot of work. So when they realized that is when they asked me to go over and have a look and watch and, you know, take care of the company. But what a couple of little bit nefarious gentlemen from Los Angeles had tried to get these Indonesian billionaires to do was to buy what they were claiming would be the next major studio in Los Angeles. And they had set up a deal to buy the Lockheed Martin radar and military research facility, 
which was about a hundred acres of military research facility in the Los Angeles area. It was a large transaction, about a hundred million dollars. So I had to fly in and at 25, 26, you know, do the due diligence on this deal. So, you know, we go to the site and I guess the strangest part was I had to get military clearance. So the gentleman from the Air Force did it and then picked me up and drove me and said, Bill, everything seems okay, but it does seem like you've been to Libya. I have been to Libya, but I'm also Canadian, so I'm not too sure why you know that. (laughs) But that was all fine. We toured this military research facility. And then he said, okay, well, you can buy the whole thing, but this one building here in the little parking lot with it, we have to keep that. And I go, okay. And they said, we're going to keep that for 20 years, and then we'll just give it to you. I said, okay. Said, but you know, literally, I'm not, you know, I can't buy it without knowing what's inside this building, this one story building. And he goes, ah, he shakes his head and he goes, All right, give me a second. She so asked, calls, says, All right, okay, you can look, but you really shouldn't, you know, please understand there's no pictures or anything like that. And I said, No problem. So, right out of the movies, Corey, we walked into this building, one story, there was a Marine there with a gun and an elevator. <laughs> and sure enough, we went right down. And it was the original where they were testing the original radar. No kidding. Yes. That's where they were doing the original radar tests. So fascinating. Got to look at it. And then, of course, the business side kicks in. Had a lawyer that was helpful enough to let me know that in the U.S., these big companies have Superfund sites. Okay. Which basically means they can sell a property and then the next day the EPA can put a 200-year ban on anyone going on the property. Seriously. And in the 90s, they were allowed to do this. Amazing. Really? Yeah. So of course, I made the recommendation not to buy the sites. We didn't set up the next big movie studio in LA. Yeah. Really? So had your lawyer not caught that, you could have gone and advised the guys you're working for and said, hey, yeah, now this thing looks good. Great chunk of property. Yeah. And they were kind of pissed, actually. They said, hey, we were going to get to meet all these stars and we were going to have a movie studio. And I go, no, you were going to lose a lot of money. <laughs> Fascinating, eh? Wow. Well, that's wild, man. I love old stories like that. I love the fact you collect maps. And I really love the work you're doing with Nature's Vault because it just seems to make a lot of sense, albeit in a technologically way to do good. So um, yeah, any final thoughts that you have for us? We're really disruptive in what we're doing. And on the mining side, I mean, you know, we still need rare earth minerals, we need copper, we need nickel, we need all of these things to keep the electric vehicle revolution going. So I'm not necessarily anti-mining by any stretch, but what I am and what we all are focusing on is the minerals and metals that we can leave in the ground that are vanity in nature. Maybe it's time that we do that. Makes a lot of sense, man. Yeah. Well, Phil, thanks so much for your time. All right, Corey, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Great, man. Okay. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.